Why not the entrepreneurs who say, uh, listen, I can give better care for less money. And they can. And so they can take the business away from the profiteers of today. So with a very capitalistic system, you need the person who in any other business, the car business, whatever business says, I can give a better product for less and therefore I'll have the business. That could be done too. What's wrong with the American healthcare system and why is it so incredibly upside down? Let's talk all about it with world-renowned surgeon, author, professor, and patient healthcare advocate, Dr. Henry Bookwald, right here on episode 435 of The Nurse Keith Show. Well, hello there. This is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal and professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the big picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of medicine, nursing, healthcare, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride, and I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, you can leave a rating and review on Apple or Google or Amazon or Spotify, or just share the show with anyone you think would enjoy it or appreciate it. It's available on any podcast app where you happen to be listening. If you want to become a patron and support the show, you can go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Even $2 a month really helps support the show and keep us going. I appreciate you all so much. Thanks for being here. The show notes are always at nursekeith.com, but they're in any app where you're listening. So you can always find the links, the description, and then share from there. As I said at the top of the show, we're here with Dr. Henry Bookwald. He is the author of Healthcare Upside Down, A Critical Examination of Policy and Practice. And Dr. Bookwald, your book is amazing, first of all. It was a great read and also a frustrating read because it outlines everything that's wrong with healthcare in the United States in the 21st century. And the first question I want to ask you is why has healthcare turned upside down? What are what's one of the main mechanisms that's causing it all to feel exactly the way it shouldn't be feeling? Well, thank you, first of all, Keith, for having me on your show. It's my pleasure. Uh, This uh, transition started maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. It's a transition to making healthcare work or try to work by a business model. It's from the top down. It's administration dictates healthcare. Now, that shouldn't be. I mean, uh, we are. Doctors and nurses, we are trained to do healthcare, and it shouldn't be dictated to us by a business model. But you ask, how did we accept this? That, that's, that's a very tough question to answer. But three reasons would be ignorance. It was just sort of forced upon, it gradually was forced upon the American public. And it was preceded, as Orwell said in his book, 1984, by language. All of a sudden, hospitals and clinics and doctor's offices were called firms. And doctors were called providers. We didn't fight that because we are providers, but it's not being a doctor. And most of all, patients were now referred to as clients. and. So it was ignorance of what was happening, and it was fear. People in administration of hospitals, insurance companies, pharmaceuticals, instrument companies, uh, they had power, and people were afraid if they said, well, I'm not going to stand for this, I don't want this, uh, they would be uh, taken out of the system. They would lose. Uh, the ability to take care of their families. 
And I think the main reason was apathy. We just sort of let it happen. Uh, it's easier to go along, to be a follower, than to say, hey, wait a minute. What's happening? Uh, and I think today there might be an awakening. And I just hope it's not too late. And mm -hmm. that people still have the ability to come forth as a united front and say, we don't want this anymore. But I hear it all the time. Uh, you call up the officer who used to be your physician, and you don't talk to that person. You talk to a robot, and the robot gives you another robot. And then they give you an interrogator, and they want to know everything about you. And it says, we, we will tell the doctor. And people say, listen, I, I like to talk to the doctor and, and tell him my personal thoughts. Well, we can't do that. You have to tell me. And so then they say, okay, but uh, you cannot see the person you're calling your doctor, our provider, for two months. But we'll give you so-and-so. Why? Because so-and-so doesn't have enough patience, and his slot has to be filled. Whereas the one you thought was your doctor uh, is busy, and so he doesn't need any more patients for the business model. And, and this happens every day. Doesn't it? Doctors, surgeons don't come out of the operating room to talk to their relatives after surgery because they have to go on and earn more money for administration. So somebody else talks to them. I mean, I never did that when I was an active surgeon, but today it's quite common. And, and, People have given in to this, and that includes us. Us meaning us, myself, uh, not myself, because I haven't given in, but the medical profession. Mm -hmm. Everybody today, almost everybody who isn't a rural physician works. He's an employee. He has a job. He's no longer an independent practitioner. And so administration will say, no, you can't use that drug. It costs too much. Uh, don't do that operation. It keeps them in the hospital too long. And, and the, oh, that's another thing, let's say hospitals. Um, if you go in for an operation, they're very eager to have you go in a hospital. Why? Because the first day is good. Because you get a lot of lab tests, some of them totally unnecessary. Mm -hmm. some of the defensive mechanisms, mm -hmm. uh, and it makes a lot of money. And if you have surgery, it makes a lot, a lot of money. But from there on in, they want to get you out of the hospital. The patient may be lying in bed in pain, not able to really walk yet, but doesn't matter. Let's get him out of here so we can get another paying patient in for the expensive part of the visit. Because there's no other expensive things that need to be done once the patient is out of surgery. It's recovery, right. and that costs money. And yeah. Dr. Buchwald, I noticed in your book, and then also just now during your first response, that you you <laughs> you brought to mind George Orwell. So the just the fact, just by dint of the fact that you're you're referencing George Orwell talking about healthcare in the United States says it says everything that that that's kind that's where you go in in literature in the culture to find what describes what's happening in healthcare is orwell it's not you know you're not going back to um who knows what what other author you can quote but that's where you're going and that's it's a sad statement and you mentioned you mentioned so many things you mentioned the insurance companies, you mentioned physicians no longer having independent practice. They've abdicated their practice to a system and they're now an employee. And in your in your book, I forget which chapter, you mentioned how doctors have relinquished control and become employees and that there's a personal benefit to them because they get paid vacation, they get a 401k, they get all these things, but then they forfeit their independence as a clinician and they can't practice the way they want. So 
from your perspective, you have this long view, you know, 60 years. Do you speak with any physicians who feel like that forfeiture is worth what they get in return? Unfortunately, yes. Really? Okay. Tell me more about that. Uh, I ran the residency program at my university for a whole number of years. And I interviewed the chief residents who graduated. And we graduate six chief residents a year. And I interviewed them a year or two later. And uh, I talked to them and I said, what are you doing? Well, they were employees of a hospital, all of them. And I said, what do you get for that? And they said, oh, we get uh, paid vacations. Uh, we don't have to come in at night. The hospitalist sees our patients. Um, uh, we get maternity leave, paternity leave. Uh, we have set hours, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, now, is this worth to you uh, giving up your independence? And essentially all of them said, well, yes, yes, because it allows me for a, a better uh, personal life, whatever that means, family, playing golf or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, they, most of them have accepted it. Today, uh, People are starting maybe not to accept it. But unfortunately, this acceptance already starts today in medical schools because who do medical students emulate? It's the clinicians that they work with, and they're already in this kind of a system. Uh, you mentioned the chapters of, of, of my book. Uh, the first chapter is all statistics. But it's easy to read statistics. And what it shows that in all the standard statistics, life expectancy, uh, infant mortality, etc., we are well down on the list. Every European Western nation, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, far better statistics. We lead in only one, cost. 17 plus percent of our gross national product goes to healthcare. The closest nation, I think, is Switzerland at 11. That's mm -hmm. a big difference. Mm -hmm. and, yes. and they have much better healthcare. And, mm -hmm. and so the second chapter is, is on language. But from there on in, there every chapter talks about hospitals, about insurers. Uh, I, I talk about the public health service and so on. And finally, I get to the last chapter where I give 10 suggestions on how we can turn healthcare upside down, right side up again. Uh, and the heart of that chapter is it has to be a citizen effort through your organizations because the individual can't do it. Yes. So, if we as doctors, we have to do it through the AMA, the American College of Surgeons, etc. Mm -hmm. Now, you're, you're coming from a perspective, like I said, of over 60 years. So you're Professor Emeritus of Surgery and Biomedical Engineering at University of Minnesota. You've, I mean, there's so many things you've done. You were the Chief Base Flight Surgeon for Strategic Air Command at Air Force Base in Omaha. You hold patents. You're the author of, gosh, almost 400 peer-reviewed medical um, publications. So you're coming from this perspective from the time of before these changes happen, because you said that it's the last 30 to 40-ish years. It's hard to say when. Hard to say, but somewhere around there. And when I was a kid, I was born in the mid-60s, 1964. I grew up watching things like Marcus Welby, MD, on TV, and Marcus Welby and his young um, comrade, they would do house calls, they, they knew their patients by name, they, you know, they had these personal relationships. So you come from that time where the doctor had a very different relationship with their patients, and your peers at the time did you not hear grumblings about, you know, 
the hours and the the hard work and the malpractice insurance? What were the things 50 to 60 years ago that that were the kind of like the thorns in doctors' sides? Of course, everybody grumbles about something, Mm -hmm. but it was our calling. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was what we wanted to do in life. Mm -hmm. It was what we felt we were somehow called to do. Uh, it, it we didn't. I don't think most of us did it for the money. Uh, we did it because this is what gave us meaning in life. And we didn't hear at that time the so-called what you hear today burnout. There was actually a paper written that fifty percent in in one medical school, fifty percent of the medical students said they had burnout. How can they be? They haven't done a thing yet. All they've done is sit and learn wonderful things about the human body, about disease, interesting things. What are they burned out about? Uh, we have to stop that kind of a thinking. Uh, if they don't want this life, they shouldn't go into it in the first place. There are a lot of applicants. I think part of it might be possibly the stress of how much money they know they're they're borrowing, they're going into debt in order to what the doctors I've talked to, the young ones, it's the debt, it's not being able to afford to their their basic living expenses while they're going to medical school. And some of them might have young families and they're having trouble paying their rent or mortgages, you know, because they can't work and make money while they're in medical school. And the cost, we know the cost of medical school and university and college is so extortionate here in the United States now. So, you know, my friends in Europe, when they go to medical school, you know, they're they're probably mostly in like in the Netherlands, they're not paying anything for university and they can't understand this process under which we go to college or university and, and rack up hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. And I'm I'm curious, you know, I do speak with with young people who are going into medicine who are in medical school. And what I what I hear from a lot of them is they have the passion, they really want to be of service, and they don't really talk about the money. They worry about what they're borrowing. So I feel like there's this, there is the desire. I hear the calling. Everything you describe in your book, the Orwellian nature of healthcare and medicine and the ways in which they're going to be forced to practice if things don't change, it it brings to mind, you know, articles I've read recently in the New York Times about doctor burnout, articles we read about, you know, we lose it they they estimate one doctor a day to suicide in the United States on average. It's it boggles the mind that someone who has a calling to become a healer, because doctors are healers, that you're driven to the point of either substance abuse, depression, anxiety, secondary trauma, and suicide. So (laughs) where do we turn? You were saying that it takes... It, it's going to take action from the people, right? So does that mean we talk to our legislators? You know, what? where do we turn? What are the avenues we turn in order to address these issues? Well, <laughs> you ask a lot of questions there. <laughs> yeah, we'll start with one. So, you we're, know, we're... <laughs> let, let's take the death, the death thing. Yes. Uh, you know, the dead existed in my day as well. Mm-hmm. And we somehow lived with it, made up for it in later years, accepted it. Uh, should there be less debt? Should there be more support? Of course there should be. We support education so poorly in the United States. Mm-hmm. And that's starting with public school teachers. I, I have grandchildren now who are teaching in public schools. And they hardly make a living. And they have a calling, and yet they're not supported. And here they take the, the child, the earliest child, 
and they can do so much for, with that child, but they're not supported. No, we have to support education more. And that's what you're really saying about the European countries. Uh, they appreciate that we need to support education more than what we support in this country with our tax dollars. All right, so how you ask, how do these things get changed? And uh, as I said, I, I think the individual will be crushed. You have to do it through organizations. For instance, let us say uh, the postal workers, there are several million in their union. Let us say the Teamsters, let us say any of these groups, if they say to their representatives, we don't want to speak to a robot. When, we, when a doctor operated on us or saw us, we want to see him again. We want the system changed. And they have the power. They have the money. And they can come and, and talk to legislators. I mean, our politicians do what their constituency wants them to do. And if the constituency is a few people who give them billions of dollars, they'll do what they want them to do. But if, you give, if the constituency are the thousands and hundred thousands and millions of people who vote, because everybody has only one vote, they'll do what they want them to do. Hmm. Uh, so it has to be an effect through the public, through their organizations. And I give an example, I don't work for them at all. Uh, USAA, mm -hmm. veteran, as you said. And uh, they don't make a, they make a profit, small profit, to support their board of directors. It's a fraternal organization of veterans that gives insurance across the board. And so organizations like that have to be featured, not organizations where the CEO takes home 40 million a year and all the little CEOs take home that kind of money. Where does that come from? It comes mm -hmm. from giving poorer care, uh, co-payments, oh, this isn't covered, mm -hmm. et cetera, and so on. Uh, that's where it comes from. Um, so my solution would be not socialized medicine, though. People don't know 60% of our country is socialized medicine. Medicare, medical Medicare. VA, armed forces, Indian services, that's all socialized medicine. Very it true. Government runs the pocketbook of those organizations. And yet we say, oh, we're not socialized. So we are. Mm -hmm. But the rest, the private sector can appeal to what I can talk for better wording, fraternal organizations, teamsters, veterans, mm -hmm. etc., uh, representing their people and saying, we don't want this anymore. We want something that isn't a dream, that it's elsewhere. One more thought on that. Why not the entrepreneurs themselves? Why not the entrepreneurs who say, uh, listen, I can give better care for less money. And they can. And so they can take the business away from the profiteers of today. So and with a very capitalistic system, mm -hmm. we need the person who in any other business, the car business, whatever business says, I can give a better product for less. And therefore, I'll have the business. That could be done too. Concierge medicine. And when we come back from the break, I'd like to continue that conversation and talk about a whole lot more. So hang in there. We'll be right back with the second half of episode 435 of The Nurse Keith Show with Dr. Henry Bookwald. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Henry Bookwald. And Dr. Bookwald, oh my gosh, we've been talking about so many things. And your book, Healthcare Upside Down, is wonderful. I really encourage people to buy it. It's available on Amazon. 
So I do encourage people to check that out. And they can also go to drhenrybookwald.com. That's D-R Henry Bookwald, B-U-C-H-W-A-L-D.com. And like I said, you're a professor emeritus of surgery and biomedical engineering at University of Minnesota. You've been chief base flight surgeon for the Strategic Air Command. You've 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 been around. You've been you've been writing and working as a doctor for more than six decades. We talked about Marcus Welby <laughs> back in the day and the ways in which healthcare has changed. And right before the break, you were mentioning how entrepreneurship can be one of those keys because it it creates competition. So if we want a new form, a new model, there are physicians and nurses and nurse practitioners out there who are changing the model. So concierge medicine is one way people are people are turning. So that begs the question though, for the entrepreneurs out there, the entrepreneurial doctors, they tend to not take insurance and then people have to pay out of pocket. And you were talking about how, you know, legislators will listen to their constituents, but my concern is that is that the political power of the insurers, the insurance companies, are what keep us all kind of in that ecosystem because we we need the coverage and they must line the pockets of the legislators with their lobbyists. So how do we get around this the health insurance model that kind of keeps us all sort of captive in this particular ecosystem? Well, that, get, that gets back to what I said about uh, fraternal organizations. Mm-hmm. Uh, the insurers and the other pe- people who are running the show today, the head of hospital conglomerates and so on, uh, they and their upper echelon who profit from all this, they each only have one vote. Mm. And if uh, the people in a huge union decide, we don't want this. We want something different. We want something maybe that's outlined in this book that I wrote. And they have millions of votes. Mm-hmm. And in the final analysis, the politicians, sure, they love money and they love being supported, but they want to be reelected. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, they want to stay in power, and they want to stay in power. They stay in power. So they're going to listen to the majority, mm-hmm. and, gonna, and the people who today support them are the minority, and the majority just has to wake up and get out of their apathy, and and say, we want something that's good for everybody. We want something that's as good as what they have in Europe. We want something that's as good as we can get. We have such inventiveness. Uh, we, we have the best instruments. And we do. Our instrument makers make the best. Mm-hmm. We have everything the best. But we got to make it work for everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I think that can be done in a capitalistic society. And it can be done for everyone. And healthcare does not have to be second rate in a rich country, in an independent country, in a country that believes in individual freedoms. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't have to be the way it is today. We have all the resources, and it's just who is it going to work for? And at the same time, I say, which I said before, the administrators can profit from it. Mm-hmm. But they have to, it has to first serve before it can do anything else. Right. And it, it has to serve. Um, I can tell you two quick stories, if you wish. Please, please. Uh, which, which uh, personal examples of how healthcare has changed. 
when I was a medical student, I was making rounds and my wife had the flu. And I happened to mention that. And George Pereira, one of my professors, heard me. And that evening, we lived two blocks from the university in a fifth floor walk-up. There's a knock on the door. And there is Dr. Pereira, who happened to be a multimillionaire, worked tremendously hard. And there he was with his little black bag. And he said, with your permission, I've come to examine your wife to make sure she doesn't have pneumonia. And yes, he examined her. She didn't have pneumonia. She just had the cold or flu. And he said, this is the way you have to practice medicine. So that stayed with me. Mm. In 2016, I got thrown by a horse. And uh, <clears throat> I've been riding horses all my life. And I went down uh, every year to Arizona to play cowboy. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to a ranch. I, I worked with the cowboys. They knew me. I went on roundups and all this and that. And the first time in my life, I don't know how many horses I've ridden, this horse and I did not get along. And he threw me, and I had 11 broken ribs, some in several places, uh, a crushed scapular, a displaced lung. Oh, my gosh. Two grams of hemoglobin somewhere in my soft tissues. Anyway, I was in a hospitalist hospital for 33 days. Hmm of which in the intensive care unit, the other half in rehab. In the intensive care unit, I never had a physician who was my doctor. There was never a human being who came in who said, I am the head of the intensive care unit, and let's do this and that, and so on. I did most of the care for myself. I said, listen, I need, I need an oxygen mask, because my lung is not where it's supposed to be. <laughs> and but every day I saw a different hospitalist who came in and said, How are you? And I mumbled something and he said, Well, I'll look in your chart. Goodbye. And the next day I saw another hospitalist. So I, I've seen both aspects. And as a patient, or as a husband of a patient, this is not the one. I don't want the latter one. If, if the former one can be made available. And that, that those two stories illustrate this deterioration that's happened. And I understand how the hospitalist system has benefits. You know, the, the hospitalist follows all the patients, the, the, um, the admitting MD doesn't have to come in on rounds at night, you know, all those sorts of things. But we do lose that sense of continuity and connection, feeling like there's someone who actually knows us and doesn't have to look at the chart to understand who we are, first of all, or, you know, and they, they have, there's some sort of relationship. And I'm assuming that when you started out as a doctor, that healthcare and the delivery of medical care to your patients was a very relational transaction. Isn't that true? Wasn't it highly relational? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, the next to last chapter talks about the doctor-patient relationship. Mm -hmm. The patient referred to the doctor as my doctor. Was mm -hmm. He trusted that person. If she trusted her, him. Yes. It, it, my doctor meant, I trust you. And the doctor said, my patient. That doesn't mean as a possessive. It meant I take responsibility. Yes. So today that's gone because you don't know who is your doctor anymore. It's who's next on the list. And so how can you say my doctor and how can anyone say my patient? Uh, so that relationship which I think is at the heart of good medicine, has been shattered. Mm -hmm. And that has to be restored as one of the primary objectives of turning healthcare right side up. You know, if you have a couple of minutes at the very end, I'd like to read you my last two paragraphs from my epilogue. 
if you have time. You could read them right now if you like. All right. Okay. All right. Because it, it frames my thinking and my message, if you will. The opening moment of life, birth, involves health care for mother and child. Growing up and achieving adulthood involves health care. Being able to live a mature life, to work, to love, to have children is dependent on health care. And the final chapter, aging, can be realized and even made pleasurable by health care. Health care is, therefore, integral to life from beginning to end. Health care is not a commodity, but a necessity. Health care needs to be treated with respect. The establishment, practice, and financing of health care affect everyone, should not be neglected by anyone, and must be the concern of all of us. I have been a doctor for 60 years, and during those years at times, I've also been a patient. I've held the hands of my patients. I have been the one whose hand has been held. I have received trust and given trust. The therapeutic decisions my patients and I reach were not subject to the interdiction of a third party. I do not want to have my life's role as a physician and surgeon, my joy in the process, usurped by an aristocracy. As a patient, I do not want to hold hands with a robot and confide my health problems to a faceless entity. As a doctor, a patient, a person, I reject the currently shattered doctor-patient relationship. Healthcare is upside down. Let us set it right side up. Well said. That's the last few paragraphs of your epilogue. Right. Now, in terms of turning things right side up, let's, let's just outline some of your suggestions. What do you feel like are the most the most salient, the ones that that we really need to focus on in terms of your 10 potential remedies that you offer in chapter 14? Well, all right. Uh, number one and overriding is there has to be a public awakening. And uh, as to say, listen, we can do better. And this has to come through our organizations, as I've said, unions, whatever else, uh, right within our capitalistic system. I, I, you know, I, 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 personally, I'm, I'm fairly much a capitalist and, and uh, conservative. Mm-hmm. And it has to be within that system, which I think is the best system for our country. I think the media can help a lot. Uh, the media, by giving news and entertainment, forms opinion. The media, spoken, visual, etc., has led people to good things and to bad things. And the media should have a responsibility in, in saying, let's do this thing better. Um, I already mentioned that Entrepreneurs can say, hey, we can do this better. We can make a better health system, like we can make a better car, we can make a better this, we can make a better health system. We can be the best in the world and not somewhere down one third of the list of all the statistics of healthcare. And another solution might be philanthropy. The there, there's something like 70 or so billionaires in the United States and several million millionaires. And a lot of them support health care, but they usually support a disease. Uh, they want to fight diabetes. They want mm-hmm. to do this. Why not, if I can appeal to some nice billionaire to, to fund an institute to educate the public? to use the media, to use that money for education, to use that money to do surveys. Are you satisfied with today's health care? 
uh, do you like talking to robots? Uh, you know, it can be done by a, a philanthropist who can give a, a donation to making such an institute that doesn't just concern itself with a particular disease, which is important, but with the system. Mm-hmm. So those are some suggestions uh, to help. Can it be done? I don't know. Uh, I compare myself to the little boy in Hans Anderson's tale of, of the emperor has no clothes. Hmm. Uh, I, I think our healthcare system is the emperor walking around actually naked, but walking around in great glory with attendants holding an invisible cloak. And everybody says, oh, yeah, good, good clothes. But one little boy says, the emperor has nothing on at all. And then the crowd says, hear him, hear him. I, I always like that, hear him, hear mm-hmm. him. And, and so that's what I want to be. I want to be the little boy. And I want the American crowd to say, hear him, hear him. The emperor doesn't have any clothes. And, and let, let, let's could have put some clothes on him that makes sense. Yes. And let's get a copy of your book into the hand of every member of Congress, every senator, everyone out there who is of influence, and also consumers who can read your book and and healthcare providers also who can read your book and enact some change. And I really appreciate the book. I think it's it is truly what the what the subtitle says. It's a critical critical examination of policy and practice. It's very important points you make here. And I think it's it's a short, relatively short book, but it is a crystal clear examination of American healthcare in the 21st century and what we are facing, what we all are unhappy about waiting so long to to talk to our doctor, to see a provider, everything you've outlined, it makes complete sense. And I greatly, greatly appreciate the book. And before we go, I have four quick lightning round questions I ask all my guests. Are you willing to play along? Anything you wish. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, here we go. Okay. So the first question is, how do you define success, either personally or professionally? Taking joy in your work. Hmm. You are not the first guest to mention joy. Yeah. So you didn't mention money. You didn't mention fame. <laughs> you mentioned joy. Yeah. I love I, that. That's That's, you know, when you say hello to people, as you're walking down a corridor mm-hmm. and they say, oh, thank God it's Thursday or Friday or, oh, my God, it's Monday. Mm. They're living to for the weekend, whatever they do on the weekend, play golf or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not taking joy in their work. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I think the answer is joy in your work. I appreciate that. Okay. Second question. Could you name or describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life, they can be living or dead, famous, or someone who none of us would ever have had the opportunity to know or hear about? Uh, I can have so many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so many. Who's I mean, one that really, really is just one of those people who just stays with you? Well, how about two? Mm-hmm. Uh, Go for it. The chairman of my department, no longer living. Owen Wangenstein, who became chairman uh, at the age of 30 in 1932. Hmm. Uh, and he revolutionized medical training in surgery. Because surgeons before were more or less trained as clinicians, uh, technicians and clinicians. And all of us had to have research. And uh, he wanted to have surgeons be researchers, thinkers, and educators. and out of his department came open heart surgery, um, heart transplantation, mm-hmm. management of obstruction from 40% mortality to 4%, mm-hmm. 
my own partial allele bypass and the POSH trial, which I ran, $65 million trial, was the first to show that lowering cholesterol increases life expectancy. Mm. And it led to transplantation. He revolutionized in what a lot of people consider flyover country, Minnesota. He revolutionized the world of medicine. Mm. And then there was my mentor and uh, personal friend, Richard Varco, uh, who was not only a beautiful technical surgeon and demanded technical excellence from everyone in the operating room, but he demanded total dedication to your patients. And you were there to take care of them. You stood between them and certainly for many a surgeon between death, between a good life, no life at all. And you had to be dedicated. And that was number one in your life. And at the same time, he enjoyed life. He enjoyed his private life. And I think we all enjoyed our private lives. I don't think we had to totally sacrifice. We sacrificed time. We slept less. Mm -hmm. We did it. But they sound like two very important people who influenced your your professional career and your life and the way in which you viewed medicine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, very important figures. Thank you for sharing about them. The third question, the penultimate question, I'm curious, is there a book or a movie? It doesn't have to be an absolute favorite, just one that comes to mind that's impacted the way you think, the way you live your life, the way you approach your work or relationships, something that is just central or core to to how you see the world around you. Well, it's a tough one. Hmm, yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a book or a movie. Um, well, I have some favorite movies, but uh, they are mostly for entertainment. I, I, mm-hmm. I like the old movie, The Quiet Man. Mm. Which, wonderful movie. Uh, a book. Um, I, I I guess it was sort of a textbook that, that I had in college, which were excerpts of famous philosophers and thinkers hmm. and uh, sort of gave the original works. It wasn't uh, somebody's interpretation, the original works uh, of uh, Socrates as uh, written by Plato and, and so on throughout time. And uh, that influenced me a great deal about mm. all these wonderful thoughts and if they made sense for their time or if they made sense for all time. That that makes me see in you even more the the humanist side of you as a physician. That well, that thank you. yeah that that really lovely that beautiful part of you that that has been of service for so many decades service to other people I, I think that's lovely okay last question if you were named king of the world tomorrow which I think would be a really excellent idea for those out there who have any influence on such matters. What's one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your subjects, bearing in mind that as king of the world, you have ultimate power and you could end up doing everything you wanted. But if you were going to take your first act as king of the world, what would that first act be? (laughs) Hmm. Well, I would like peace in this world. Hmm. I would like people to embrace peace. Uh, you know, I'm an old man now. Uh, I fled with my parents from the Holocaust. Mm. Uh, I fled where six million Jews were murdered. Why? No reason for it. Mm -hmm. What's going on right now? I feel, and, and, and having been in the service and having been in Strategic Air Command, I mean, we 
had all the nuclear weapons. We were prepared for war. And the hope was that being prepared would prevent war. Mm. That was the motto of, of Strategic Air Command. But we were a very dedicated service. We still are. And, and SAC is now part of um, services together with, with uh, SEALs and, and all the immediate uh, reaction groups in our military. But look what's going on. So many people in the Ukraine, young men, women, in Russia, they're getting killed. Why? Mm -hmm. There's no reason for this. Mm -hmm. the, the, the voices of peace should, should prevail. And uh, that's what I would try somehow as king of the world, make uh -huh. peace. Um, you know, Declaration of Independence says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That puts a lot of emphasis on it. And life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness all are part of health care. Without good health, there's no life, there's no liberty. There's no pursuit of happiness. Hmm. And you would be a wise and beneficent king of the world, I'm sure. Hmm. Well, well, Dr. Henry Bookwald, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. You are, you are a brilliant humanist physician and surgeon who's done a lot of great work in the world for so many decades. And having you here on the show is an honor and a privilege. And it's really been wonderful. And I can't thank you enough. Well, let me thank you for having me. It's been a, a great pleasure. Thank you for helping me get that message out there. It, it's not about me, but it's about everyone. Thank you again. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening, please go to Amazon, find Healthcare Upside Down, a critical examination of policy and practice by Henry Bookwald. Buy a copy, send it to your senator, your member of Congress, your physician, buy copies of this book and disseminate it. It's a very important read. And you can go to drhenrybookwald.com. That link will be in the show notes. If you need career coaching for your whole, for your healthcare and nursing career, check out Nurse Keith Coaching at nursekeith.com. Mention the show and get 10% off your first coaching package. We are members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com. And we are jointly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Albert Schweitzer. Success is not the key to happiness. Happiness is the key to success. If you love what you're doing, you will be successful. Albert Schweitzer with the very same thought that Dr. Henry Bookwald just shared with us a few moments ago. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and the inimitable Dr. Henry Bookwald saying adieu from Minneapolis, Minnesota, a beautiful time of the year. Don't come here in winter necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Bookwald, and thank you to everyone for listening. We will catch you on the proverbial flip side. <laughs>